Well, good morning, everybody. If you haven't figured it out by now, I'm Pastor Todd, and welcome. We're glad you're here in this room, and also for those of you that are watching online. And uh, it is hard to believe, but we are in the final weekend of what has been a gorgeous summer, has it not? But we still got some time. It's not fall yet, not until we get to the 22nd. So you know what we say, right? Squeeze all of the juice out of the rest of the summer and the rest of this weekend. We are going to look at the book of Revelation this morning and the seven churches of the book of Revelation over the next seven weeks, obviously. And uh, so we're going to begin this morning, uh, oh, this uh, picture is a little upside down there, but uh, this is our little one that was born on uh, Friday. And if you turn your head upside down, you can see that she's quite marvelous. I'm not sure what happened there. But we're going to read together from uh, Ephesians, sorry, from Revelation chapter uh, 2, verses 1 to 7. And uh, we are going to stand here in the room, and for those of you that are watching online, you can just stay seated or whatever it is you're doing, and especially if you're driving, would you please stay seated? <clears throat> Indeed. Let's read together. This is what it says. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know your enduring patience and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your goodness and for your love and your mercy in our lives. And we thank you that you have shown that in extravagant, generous, and gracious ways through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the work and ministry of your Holy Spirit, you have taken that which you have done in Jesus and make it possible and applicable and available in each of our lives. And Lord, we thank you that you have called us to be your sons and daughters, that you have called us to be co-laborers with you, and you have done that through the agency of the Spirit. And so now, this morning... We ask that that same Holy Spirit would do as our text says this morning, give us ears to hear. Not just the ears on our head, Lord, but the ears of our heart. And Lord, that you would give us minds to comprehend, hearts to understand. And Lord, as we go out from this place and as we 
end this service today and in our marriages where it's applicable and our families and our children and our neighborhoods and where we're going to go to school this week and where we're going to go to work this week and where we're going to buy our services this week, that you would help us by that same Holy Spirit, that you would help us to live out what it means to be the disciples of Jesus in practical and meaningful, tangible ways. And we ask all of this for Christ's sake, and we ask it in his name, that he may be praised and glorified. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Seven churches of Revelation, as we begin our series and as we begin this journey on the seven, the letters or the writings to the seven churches of Revelation as they given to us in Revelation chapter 1 verse 11 to Ephesus and to Smyrna, <clears throat> to Pergamum and Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I think that we might enjoy a little background just to help us to get organized. There are varying interpretations of how the messages of these churches is supposed, is supposed to apply. Some hold that these messages are only for the historical churches in the book of Revelation in their time and place. In other words, they do not apply to us. They are irrelevant to us today. And by the way, as we're going along, all seven churches in the book of Revelation are in what is known as the ancient province of Asia Minor, which is today known as Turkey. All seven churches are located in modern Turkey. Others have suggested that these messages are for the whole church, but for the seven dispensational ages throughout history. And of course, this is problematic because if this interpretation is correct, and we believe, as many Christians believe, that this is the last days, then it means that we are living in the time or in the age of the church of Laodicea. And if we have read the text around what is said about the church of Laodicea, at best it is not very flattering, and at worst it is simply alarming what Jesus has to say to them. But the third interpretation is the one that we are going to be working from, that I am going to be working from, and it's simply this, that the messages that is written and spoken to them and for them in the book of Revelation is not for them only, but is for the entire church in John's day back then and throughout church history and for us today. In other words, the message of the seven churches of Revelation is a first century message for a 21st century church. Or to put it a different way, it is a first century message to first, sorry, first century message to 21st century believers for us. It's for us. It's for Glad Tidings Church today. It's for you. And it's for me individually as Christ followers and as believers. So our series and our text begins with an extraordinary message. 
Now, what's interesting, if you're paying attention to the text, is that the message is not actually delivered or addressed to the actual church or congregation. The message is actually written or given to the angel of the church. Jesus says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. Now again, there is some different interpretation around how we're supposed to understand the idea of who the angel is. Well, first of all, there are those that suggest that the angel is the pastor of the local church, the leader. Now, I like the idea of being an angel. My mother would not have said that, but if you want to call me that, then you just feel free to do that. And the leadership, or rather the congregation at Ephesus had known stellar leadership. We know from history that Paul actually planted the church in Ephesus and that Paul spent more time in the city of Ephesus on his missionary journeys than he did in any other place. And we also know that Timothy, Paul's spiritual son, was also the pastor at this church in Ephesus. And the church, early church father and historian Irenaeus tells us that John the disciple, sometime after the death of Jesus, took Mary, Jesus' mother, and he and her, they went to live in Ephesus, and John became the pastor of Ephesus, and he was the pastor up until the time of Emperor Trajan. Actually, it was from Ephesus that John wrote the three epistles, the three letters of John, John 1, 2, and 3. Now, so some suggest that it is a figurative understanding of the pastor or the leader of the church. Others tell us that we are to take it literally as an angel. Of course, and we know in Daniel chapter 10, verses 20 to 21, it tells us that angels have specific assignments and responsibilities and jurisdictions. In other words, there is an angel or angels that are assigned to this congregation here at Glad Tidings Church. That if we could see into the spiritual realm, we would see an angel or angels that are responsible for this assembly, for this congregation, for us, just as there was in Ephesus. Now, it can go either way as to whether we should take it figuratively to mean the pastor or we should take it literally to mean an angel, a spiritual being. But what is more important than that is this, that it reminds them then and us today that our primary experience existence as the church of Jesus Christ is not physical, but is indeed spiritual. But it also reminds us that whether it is talking about a literal angel or it is talking about a figurative pastor and leader, it reminds us that both or either or are in Jesus' hand, that Jesus is ultimately in control of the leadership of his church. And we are told that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. But there's also this, that Jesus is continually present 
in our midst. And this morning and at other times, as he walks, it says in Revelation, among the seven golden candlesticks, which is uh, the candle stands, which is the seven churches, that Jesus is walking amongst us here at Glad Tidings Church this morning. And simultaneously, this is both comforting and intimidating. The penetrating, the inescapable presence of Jesus in our midst is on the one hand reassuring, but on the other hand, it is threatening. But that brings us to this unusual congregation. When the church at Ephesus began, it was not long before the city began to experience the impact of the gospel. The city of Ephesus is one of, if not the most important, seaports on the entire Mediterranean. And because of its strategic location on the Mediterranean, it is the doorway to the rest of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And it handled more trade than any other port on the Mediterranean Sea. And therefore, because of this, it was a center of commerce. And because of that, it was multicultural and multi-ethnic. And people came there from all over the world. It was one of the wealthiest and most magnificent cities that was ever built on the Mediterranean, and it also gained a reputation of being a pleasure-seeking capital. But Ephesus was also the home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis, which housed the cult and the worship of Diana. And so Ephesus, the city, seems like the most unlikely soil for the sowing of the seed of the gospel. But it was there. It was there that Christianity had some of its greatest successes. And just as the city of Ephesus was strategic to politics and commerce and religion, it was also strategic for the advancement of the gospel. And so it is not a coincidence that Ephesus is the very first of the seven churches of Revelation to be addressed in our text. Matter of fact, the congregation, the church at Ephesus was very much like Glad Tidings Church in the sense that it was a flagship church in ancient Asia Minor, just as Glad Tidings Church has been a flagship church in northern Ontario. And the church in Ephesus was strong. It was vibrant. It was zealous, and it was a loving church. And if you read through our text, there's a number of things that they are commended for. They are commended for their works in the Lord. They weren't lazy. <clears throat> Excuse me. They are commended for their patient endurance. And they are com commended for their commitment to sound doctrine. These were Bible-believing people, if they actually had a Bible. 
And their willingness to endure suffering is another reason why they're commended. And then they are commended because they hate the work or the works of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says God also hates. Now, the Nicolaitans are mentioned twice in Revelation 2. And as far as we can tell, they are the followers of a deacon called Nicholas of Jerusalem, hence the names, Nicolaitans. Now, Nicholas abandoned his beautiful wife because of her beauty, and get this, so that whoever wanted to might enjoy her. Yes, you're reading it properly. And this practice turned into gross immorality and actually developed into marriage partners being exchanged among different people. And in the Bible, they are condemned not just for their false teaching and for their immorality, but they are condemned for deliberately leading people astray. And Jesus says in Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verse 1, he says, temptation to sin is sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Jesus was not kind to people who purposely and consciously led other people astray, and neither were the Ephesian Christians to their credit. This is an extraordinary congregation. This is a good church with a strong history, with stellar leadership and good pastors. By the time John receives this letter, that we read in our text, almost 40 years have passed, and along with it, their former vibrancy and zealousness and their love. And so the question is, what happened to them? What happened? Well, we are not told directly how they got to where they got to, But we are told the result, and the result is a fatal flaw. Now, the flaw, according to the King James interpretation of Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, is that they had abandoned their first love. Their first love. Have you ever been in love? Sounds like a Celine Dion song, doesn't it? None of you should know that. Ever been in love? Do you remember our first love? What it was like? We call it chemistry. This mystical attraction. Uh, Do you remember the passion, the romance? The insatiable desire to be together, you just couldn't get enough time together, and when you were together all evening, 
you spent all night on the phone after that. Remember that? Of course, some of you are being shy and proper. We wanted to know about the other person. This strong commitment to the relationship, this intense preoccupation of the heart. Remember? You remember? When you first fell in love. Now, we need to be careful, of course, because when we describe the first love of the Ephesian Christians, the Ephesian church, uh, we, run the, we don't want to run the risk of being too emotive. I think we all understand that when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, like every other intimate relationship, that there is feelings and there is emotion. Tim Redmond said, there are many things that catch my eye, but there are only a few things that catch my heart. And it is those I consider to pursue. So first love certainly has an emotional component to it. But it's not just that. Now again, debate, um, disagreement, and discussion about what what is it that they mean and is meant by first love is up for grabs. Some people suggest it's a lack of enthusiasm, that they've lost their enthusiasm. And of course, in the Greek language, the word enthusiasm literally means God within. Others have suggested that they have lost their passion for Christ. And still others suggest that they've lost their passion for mission. And others have suggested that they have lost their reputation or their influence in the city. And still others are a little bit more general and they say that the issue is that they are apathetic and indifferent. (coughs) And still others, excuse me, still others say that when we grow cold in our relationship with Jesus, we become cynical. Now, I know that the word cynical is spelled C-Y-N-I-C-A-L, but think about the sound of it. Sin-ical. Sin-ical. Now, it may have been one of these, some of these, all of these, and none of these. We do not know. But either way, the result is still the same. Something is seriously wrong in the Ephesian church. And Jesus calls them and us out on it. Our text seems to describe them as people who are just going through the motions of something that once was but is no longer of going through the motions of a relationship that was vibrant and was alive but is no longer, of a commitment that burned like a white-hot passion and now is just a flicker and not even a flame. 
Of course, one of the problems of going through the motions of our relationship with Jesus Christ is that our religion quickly deteriorates into being religious. So, is it possible to do the right things and still be wrong? Is it possible to do the work of the Lord and it be a duty rather than a labor of love? And is it possible to love the Word of God more than the God of the Word? The answer is yes. Gene Fleming calls this dangerously safe ground. She writes this, and it's a little long, but it's worth us listening to. She writes, I've been a Christian for some, for 20 some years. I have enough knowledge to keep from making a fool of myself in Christian circles. I'm proficient enough in Christian jargon to understand and be understood in most religious gatherings. And usually, I can find Nahum before the last person stops shuffling pages. I've attended conferences and seminars and spoken at a few myself. And most of my brothers and sisters in Christ consider me a reputable fellow believer. I'm on dangerously safe ground. And she goes on. She says, it seems to me the Pharisees stood on such ground. They carried their religious aura comfortably. They were respected, satisfied, complacent. They knew enough not to make fools of themselves and enough to make themselves look very good. Once they reached this comfortable level, they rested contently in their ecclesiastical hammocks. They were happy to appear spiritual rather than be spiritual. The Pharisees felt safe in preserving their status quo. Actually, they were on very dangerous ground. I fear, she writes, getting comfortable relating to the Lord in a benign but nevertheless calloused way. I want to expose myself to God in a vulnerable and ruthless way so that He can change me. Powerful words. But we haven't answered our question yet, have we? If you've been paying attention. So what happened to the Ephesian church? What happened to the Ephesian Christians? Well, as I said, we're not really told, but what happened, but if we go back to our example of when we first fell in love, it might help. So I ask again, remember when? Remember when we first fell in love? We met, we married, and then something happened along the way. Something 
in the daily routines and rhythms of life. The romance ceased. The children came. The career and the business moves along. The activities increase. The stress multiplies. And eventually two people almost become two strangers. And it's a slow leak that has caused the white-hot passion of love to cool. Now, I think that we can see the analogy between that and our relationship with Jesus Christ. Somebody said this, we drift toward complacency, but we drive toward commitment. Our heads are full of knowledge, but our hearts are empty. And it is possible that our hands are busy doing the work of the Lord, but our hearts are just not into it. A relationship becomes routine. Discipleship at best is duty and at worst is drudgery and caring for others becomes a chore. And ministry becomes very mechanical. And we are just going through the motions. How do we know? How do we know if we are on dangerously safe ground that Gene Fleming described? How do we know if we have abandoned our first love? How do we know if our love for Christ is chilled and we have become complacent? Well, there are a list of questions I think that might help us. What am I grumbling about? Or who am I grumbling about? Do I have habits that irritate others? Do I justify certain indulgences? Am I too busy to read God's word daily? Have I wrongly offended somebody? What am I selfish about? Does my conversation always honor God? Do my media and social media choices honor God? Do I procrastinate? And in what area of my life am I most undisciplined? But here's our other question. So, what's the answer? Well, the suggested dilemma, remedy rather, the suggested remedy to our dilemma by Jesus is this. First of all, he says, remember. Now, Larry Libby calls the abandonment of our first love a disease of the soul. And he writes this. He says, call it what you like. Indifference, 
preoccupation, backsliding, apathy. In my book, it's spiritual Alzheimer's disease. I know because I have sensed its shadow, a numbing mist, a murking vapor, murky vapor gradually coating the windows of my soul. Now, we all know that two of the most common, and there are many, many, many signs and marks and characteristics of Alzheimer's, these two of the most common are memory loss and disorientation, or memory loss and confusion. The Bible says to us in 2 Corinthians 4.18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, <clears throat> but the things that are unseen are eternal. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Memory loss and disorientation, memory loss and confusion muddles this reality. Memory loss, when we begin to forget the experiences of God's faithfulness that we have experienced. When we have forgot the times that we have enjoyed in His presence. When we have forgotten how God has spoken to us in His Word and we have the words underlined in our Bible or marked on our device. Or when we have forgotten what the sound of His voice is in our hearts. Or the commitments and the promises that we made and forgot to keep. I often think when I talk, when I hear about memory, I often think of the Old Testament of Moses and the people of Israel. They were caught by this illness, this disease of the soul. Uh, disorientation and memory loss. I mean, God has created a highway through the Red Sea and they doubt whether He can provide their dinner. God literally rains down their food from heaven and they worry about whether or not they are going to die of thirst. We forget. It is not that we forget intentionally, it's just that we fail to remember. And maybe that's why Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, on his last sermon before the people of Israel are entering into the land, 17 times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says to the people of Israel, remember, remember, remember. But they forgot. Jesus' second suggested remedy is repent. And we all know what this means. It means to do an about face. It means to make a 180 degree turn, to go back the way we came. Remembrance can have, sorry, repentance can have emotional element to it, but it's about action. It's a choice. It's a decision we make to repent. Which brings us to Jesus' final suggested rem remedy. He says, do 
what we did in the beginning. By the way, Jesus' last remedy here to do, to do, to do, not feel, not emotion, to do, to act, to choose, to decide, do what we did in the beginning is the same principle that's behind the Ten Commandments. And that principle is simply this, that we do not think or feel our way into action. The principle behind the Ten Commandments is that we act and we do, and eventually we will think that way and we will feel that way. (coughs) We have a humorous way of putting this. Fake it until you make it. But seriously, how many times have we thought or used the excuse I just don't feel like it. I just don't feel like it. Immaturity functions out of emotion and feeling. Maturity moves us beyond feeling and emotion to action. It's conscious. It's a rational choice. It's a decision. That's why we call it spiritual disciplines. And James tells us that we are to be doers of the word. Doers. So in your notes, and I'm not going to take time to do this, but I've given us some suggestions around things that might help us along the way. But I want to conclude with this. How old is Glad Tidings Church? How long has Glad Tidings Church been in existence in Sudbury? Anybody know? Anybody know? Seriously. Uh, Loud? 70 years. Okay, I think it's a bit more than that. Yeah. How much? Anybody else? Anybody know how long Glad Tidings Church has been in Sudbury? Well, you're close. You're very close. 91 years. 91 years. Actually, you're almost very close. Uh, 1929, the first group of people that would eventually become Glad Tidings Church met here in Sudbury. 91 years. But here's a more important question in our text. How long do you think we'll be here? How long do you think Glad Tidings Church will exist in Sudbury? I'm serious. What do you think? When? I I can't hear you. Speak loudly if you've got the answer. Until Jesus comes. Possibly. Uh, Maybe forever. Those are good answers. That's the ones I had. You know, I wonder, I wonder if the Christians in Ephesus made the same assumption. Jesus says in our text in verse 8, he says, Remember, therefore, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you know what is both 
scary and sobering about that statement is that the Ephesians church did not. The Ephesian Christians did not do what Jesus said. And history shows that what Jesus said he would do, he actually did. He came and removed their lampstand from its place. There is only one of the seven churches of Revelation that still exists in Turkey. And it's not Ephesus. Is that not a sobering conclusion? Somebody said that we are not punished just for our sins but punished by our sin. 